you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 24. This past week, my wife Melissa texted me a video that had been posted to, to Instagram. Excuse me here, I'm a little tight on space here. Uh, posted video texted, posted to, to Instagram. Um, and this, this, this little video, and it was probably on, on, on TikTok or one of those things first, uh, said, and, and the caption was, when you say you're not going to check the news. And I don't know if maybe some of you saw this really short little video. And it shows a man, his hand reaching out to the shower, even though he said he wasn't going to check the news. To, to check his phone. And then he's standing at the fridge. When he wasn't going to check the news, what's he doing? He's looking at his phone. And he wakes up in the middle of the night to do what? To check his phone. And maybe a lot of you did that this past week as you were anxiously awaiting what the, re, what the election results were going to be. There have been a lot of similar sentiments made on social media. It's been a year, really, of waiting in various ways. We've been waiting for COVID results, waiting for communication for the, from the government, waiting to hear if you're working from home, if classes will be in person, if your employer will reopen, if they'll stay open, waiting to hear about layoffs, waiting to make vacation plans, waiting to hear now about, uh, uh, about election results this week. With so much waiting, it's been a, a unique year. To make it even more unique, we have all this, this access to instantaneous news. It leads to obsessive waiting. What are we as Christians waiting for? In ways, we are right there with the rest of the American citizens. But we're not only there. For while we are citizens of America, we are also citizens of heaven. And we have a blessed hope, not tied to a vaccine for COVID, or not tied to the election of a president. We are, as it says in Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've done it again, taking off the wrong part of my stand. That's okay. Waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13. We are waiting for the return of our King. As we look in Psalms 24 this morning, most Bibles break Psalm 24 into three parts. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 6, and verses 7 through 10. And you can kind of think of these three parts as, as, as three acts of a play. But the play is a little like a riddle, too, as you move from one act of this play to another. You don't really get what the psalmist King David, the ancient king of Israel, intends until you reflect on the whole. Verses 1 and 2 begins at, at creation. It describes God's supremacy over all he's made. Verses 3 through 6 describes Israelites e eager to participate in, in tabernacle or, or temple worship. And verses 7 to 10 pictures the victorious return of God to be worshipped by his people. And it's likely that David has in this mind, this entrance of this king of glory, the, 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 the return of the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's presence. It was the footstool of his throne returning from battle. 
Numbers 10, verses 35 to 36 says, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And that was the, the, the idea that the ark of the covenant would lead the people uh, of, of Israel and the enemies would flee. Verse 36 in Numbers 10, and when it rested, or when it returned to the camp, he said, Moses said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of, of Israel. And you can imagine, as far as this battle scene, perhaps the Ark of the Covenant coming back to the city of, of, of Jerusalem, you can imagine that scene in Joshua 6, when they're marching around Jericho, and the Ark of the Covenant is preceding them. Joshua 6, verse 4, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark appears, and the Ark follows these men, these priests, with trumpets. And so I just wanted to build that scene a little bit as we read, and you see it at the end of Psalm 24, the king of glory returning to, to, to the city of, of Jerusalem. It seems to be what's going on there. So I'm going to read now Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. That's that creation scene first. Here's the scene of wanting to participate in the temple worship, verses four to seven, I mean three to six. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Now here's this returning ark, it seems, coming from battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the blessing of getting to worship you together. We pray, Lord, that you'd be uh, pleased by our hearts, by the way that we lift our souls to you, by us seeking your face. Please, Lord, help us to be worshiping you in a way that's pleasing to you while we wait for the return of our King. In Jesus' name, amen. When we see this King's triumphant return in verses 7 through 11, we understand even more why the worshipers are eager to be at the temple in verses 3 through 6. The Creator, the King of glory, is returning. His people are eager to worship while they are waiting. In Psalm 24, God's people are taught how to wait for the king's return so that we worship him while waiting for him. That's what we see in Psalm 24. We see that God's people are taught how to wait for the king's return so that we worship him while waiting for him. And we're going to look at three ways this morning we are to await. Really, it's kind of four, but, but, but they're combined in verses three through six. The first is to wait confidently looking backward. Wait confidently looking backward. Wait confidently looking backward. And we're going to see that in verses one and two, where it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David begins with the beginning. Genesis 1.1 says, and you know this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Our confidence in God begins with God's unchallenged ownership of all he has made. Everything belongs to God. There is no greater authority. There's no other owner. The mountains belong to him. The oceans belong to him. Every animal from the smallest insect to the biggest elephant, the biggest whale belongs to him. Every person belongs to him, all seven to eight billion of us scattered across the earth. He knows how many of each animal there is, how many of each person there is. He knows how many have died while I'm saying this and how many were born. They all belong to him. That's what it says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein all belongs to God. In verse 2 it says, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David, in, in shorthand there, describes the beginning of, of creation from Genesis 1. It says in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There wasn't land yet. The whole earth surrounded by waters, and, 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 and it is a chaotic scene, but God is in control. It describes a scene in which the earth was covered with water, but out of that earth covered in water, it says in Genesis 1, 6-10, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse, the oceans, from the waters that were above the expanse, in, in, in the atmosphere, some kind of water around the earth, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, I know that you're thinking as you listen to that, well, I know that. I know that, 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 that God created the heavens and the earth, and I know that he, he separated the... The, 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 the land from the waters and waters below from the waters above. But why are we talking about this now? Well, King David has said he had founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. While we are familiar with a Genesis account, we are, 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 less, are less familiar with some of the Canaanite background that is lurking behind David's word choice of this word sea and this word river in verse 2. Those two words, sea and rivers, were names of Canaanite water gods. And so in this context, these words would remind David's readers of Canaanite creation myths in which Baal the Canaanite God overcame these turbulent water gods to create land. And the picture there is kind of this bow God beating back these water gods to, 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 to create dry ground, to create stability out of chaos. And David, King David, reaches back to these pagan myths 
to emphasize how much greater the true God Yahweh is. How much he's greater than the gods that the people of Israel were battling against. God is greater than Baal. Yahweh didn't conquer water. He didn't conquer water gods. God created the waters. And no one can challenge Yahweh for his universal throne. Brothers and sisters, we wait for our king. The way that we wait is by confidently looking backward to creation. God is sovereign over all that he has made. Over all that he sustains. Over all that he owns. Chaos is no contest to him. His sovereignty is certain. His supremacy is steady. There is no recount with our universal king. God has not abandoned his earth. There's not even a real battle going on. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Not a molecule is rogue. Not a single vote cast is, is outside of his control. It all belongs to him. COVID doesn't cause God to panic. Elections results don't cause God to wring his hands wishing for a different outcome. God's righteousness has not changed. Nothing forces God to tweak his covenants. He keeps his promises. God is supreme over the chaos. While we wait for the king, we look backward to creation with confidence. God reigns over all that is. So we wait confidently looking backwards. And that's why David begins this kind of this, 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 this psalm that ends with this conquering king returning. He begins with creation because God is sovereign. He's in charge. So we wait confidently, looking backwards. We also wait optimistically, looking upward, and humbly, looking inward. And I kind of cheat there. There's, there's two there, but, but that's because these ideas come together. And we'll see that in verses 3 through 6, that our desire to be with God also requires us to evaluate our hearts before God. So we wait optimistically looking upward at God, but we also wait humbly looking inward. And we're going to see that in verses three, verses 3 through 6. So in verses 1 through 2, we steady our hearts by looking backward at the Creator, who's sovereign over chaos. And now we as worshipers are eager because we know what's going to happen in verses 7 through 11. We know that God, who is supreme over all creation, he's going to come back from this battle as a conquering king. He's going to come back with a trophy in his arms. We know that God is one. And so what do we do while we're between looking backwards at creation and looking forward to the return of our king? We are eager to worship. And we are eager to worship in a way that is pleasing to him. We know that the king is going to arrive victorious. We don't have butterflies in our tummy. We know that God's enemies are going to be totally knocked out. We know that there is going to be, to be a, a victory procession of our king. So we're drawn to worship with optimism. We don't have to be troubled. 
We don't have to be fearful. Verses 3 through 6 are spoken as God's people come to worship the victor. And perhaps it's best to imagine verse 3 on the lips of those who, who desire to enter either the, 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 the tabernacle courtyard or the temple courtyard. And it says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? So there's people outside the tent saying, hey, who can get in to worship God? How can we get into God's throne room? Who shall stand in his holy place? Now, as the people came to worship God, everything about the temple would have reminded the worshipers that atonement needed to be made before worship could be enjoyed, before blessing could be received. You've got to remember, outside of that temple, outside of that tent, there, the, the scene would be full of animals that were going to be slaughtered and sacrificed. The smell of roasting meat would be saturating the airs that smoke from the altar would be going up. The smoke, when the wind blew a certain way, would be filling your eyes. The priest's robes would be drenched in blood from the slaughter that's going on. So as they came to worship, it wasn't like this nice, nice, pristine courtyard, right? They would come knowing that a sacrifice needed to be made. And as we come to worship, we know that we can only worship in God's presence because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 2, we focused on last time we had the Lord's Supper. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as we say, who can ascend God's holy hill? Who can worship in his presence? We can say, I can because of Jesus Christ, because of the sacrifice of God's Son. Hebrews 10.10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that is why we can enter into his presence to worship. It is because God the Son became man to die in the place of sinners so that we can be reconciled to God through faith in that sacrifice. And that sense of sacrifice, although not knowing of God becoming man yet, any who came to the temple would realize we're not getting in unless something dies. The temple gatekeepers answered in Psalm 24, verse 4, to, to, this, to, to this request, Who shall ascend? Who shall stand his holy place? And the priest answered, Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And this verse isn't limiting worship to those who are perfect, who are sinless, right? All of that sacrifice is going on would make very clear that we're all sinners here. But it does describe the one who is walking in, in submission to God, the one who is following the commands of God. The beginning and end of verse 4 focus on human on human relationships. The one who has clean hands is innocent. He has blameless hands, and they don't hurt others to gain what they want. At the end of the verse, it says that, 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 that he does not swear, he does not swear de de deceitfully. 
And that's the refusal to, 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 to lie to get what you want. So stated in a more positive way, not just what someone doesn't do. This is someone who's loving their neighbors as themselves, who has a clear conscience in their relationship with people. Well, if there's the focus is on horizontal relationships at the, at the bookends of verse 4, in the middle, in the center, is our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. It says that the one who comes before God to worship has a pure heart. A pure heart is one that is, that is singly devoted to the Lord, that has God as your king, whose throne on, of his heart is not divided. He's not a double-minded man. In the next phrase of verse 4, it says, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And false is that which is worthless and empty. And the reference appears to be the offering of one's soul to worship idols. The one who's going to stand in God's presence doesn't worship idols. He doesn't lift up his soul to idols. The, it's really interesting. The same phrase is in the beginning of Psalm 25, verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And that's paralleled in verse 2 of 25. Oh my God, in you I trust. To lift up your soul to what's false is to trust in what is false. To rely upon a false God. To give yourself in commitment to what can't save and to what will not satisfy. The one who is welcome to worship doesn't trust in what can't save. So as David is describing who is welcome in God's presence, he doesn't just say, well, it's, it's you if you're absolutely perfect. No, we're, we, the whole scene is all about, yes, we need a sacrifice if we're going to come into God's presence. But who is in this right relationship with God? Who's enjoying walking with God? And David pictures an undivided heart, a loyal heart, a heart that's trusting in God alone, a heart that is unwilling to compromise. This is a worshiper who's in a right relationship with God. And he demonstrates that by his devotion to God, by rejecting of duplicity, by his sincere love for others. And so this is what that worshiper does while he waits. This is how we are to live while we are waiting for our king's return. By having clean hands and a pure heart. By not lifting up our soul to what is false. And by not swearing, de swearing de 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 deceitfully. Excuse me. This is what he does while he waits. And this worshiper can be confident in his approach to God. Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He has come to worship. He's come to enjoy his relationship with God. And he leaves confirmed from that temple of that right relationship with God. God approves of his worship. It wasn't some, some, some formalism. He's just not, not coming to, to tithe money. He's just not coming to sing a song. He wants to be blessed by God, and that's, and that's what he has. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The idea of righteousness there is not being, being declared righteous from someone who is sinful and rebellion towards God and now being justified. But this is more God's, God, God's vindication of him. You are the one I've saved. You are acting in obedience to me. 
You are pleasing me. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is the idea of that verse there in verse 5. The worshiper leaves this temple scene confident he's pleasing the Lord. He hears the priest's blessing from Numbers 6, verses 24 and 26. The Lord bless you and keep you, hears the priest say. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. See, this is at, at the center of the psalm. This is what someone does from confidence in God's creation and waiting for the king's return. We live these holy lives in God's approval, pleasing to him. Psalm 24, verse 6 says, Such is the generation or the group of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. God's true worshipers come to God for what only God can give. They want his approval not to gain a right relationship with him, but because they are in that right relationship with him. They come with, with different concerns, but they each come seeking to please him, eager to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. They come seeking him while they wait for the king. So we need to be waiting optimistically, looking upward. As we wait, we must lift up our souls to God alone. He's the one we hope in. We have to seek his face. The answers to your problem will never be in a man, whether a blue man or a red man. Right? We need to long for the king's approval. We need to look for blessing from God and not likes from those without God. We need to look for vindication from him. He is our salvation. So we direct our hearts to his presence. We need to long to do his holy will. And, 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 and we can come into his presence because Christ is that sacrifice. Because he is our high priest ushering us into our father's throne room. So we wait optimistically, looking upward. Who will ascend to his hill? I want to enjoy God's presence. I want to seek his face. That is what we are doing here on this earth now. Our hearts are directed towards him. It's about us in his throne. And so what do we do while we optimistically look upward to our creator and we wait for the king's return? Well, we also wait humbly looking inward and we examine our hearts. Confess if you fail to do what is right. Confess if you've hurt someone, whether with your hands or with your speech. We strive to be blameless. When your heart is divided, reject competing gods and return to a pure heart, a, a heart devoted to God alone. Don't offer up your hearts to emptiness. Don't trust in that and which won't save. Don't trust in what won't satisfy. There's no blessing in vanity and emptiness. There's no righteousness in futility. We turn and we look to God alone. And that is why this is at the center of the psalm. It looks back at creation, confident in what God can do. It looks forward to the king's return. But in the middle is how we wait. We wait optimistically looking upward. And we wait humbly looking inward. And last, 
we do wait expectantly looking forward. We wait expectantly looking forward. We see that in verses 7 through 10. In verses 7 through 10, there's another request to, to enter. In verses 3, the request to enter was into, into, for the worshiper to the temple. But this is, but this is a, different, a different request. And you can imagine the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, returning from battle, and they are victorious. The verses here, verses 6 through 10, they're full of God's military might. And this request to enter, it, it, it isn't because the gates are locked against God. This is more of a victory chant. They're, they're, they're not surprised by a knocking at the gate and wondering, oh, who's there? Oh, it's the Ark of the Covenant. No, they know that this battle's won. But there's a pause and there's a victory kind of celebration. And you can imagine a scene of the Lakers waiting to get into the Staples Center. And the crowds are inside the Staples Center. And the Lakers are outside. And there's kind of some chanting going on back and forth as, as the team is going to enter. And the applause is going to erupt inside. There's, there's a little bit of the scene here. And in verse 7 we see the command is given by those outside, by, by the priests outside, for the gates to open. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now, the gates of, 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 of Jerusalem, excuse me, and the gates of the temple weren't gates like, like on a castle that would be wound up, right? So, 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 so it's not a drawbridge that would come up. Really, they would, they would swing outwards. So what is this, this lifting up? Well, it's a figure of speech here. Lift up your heads. Lift up your heads, Gates. And the idea here is, is be joyously expectant. Don't be downcast. If, if, if you were sad, if you were depressed, if you're discouraged, if you're downtrodden, if you're hopeless, if you're downcast, if your face is despairing, lift up your face. Have hope. Rejoice, Gates. Your king has arrived. Let him in. You don't have to, to fear. Don't despair, Jerusalem. Your king is outside the gates. And so you can hear the refrain of those inside the city. And the answers, who is this king of, king of glory? And this is not wondering, well, who is this king of glory outside our gates? We know who the king is, right? This is more of a chant to build enthusiasm for the king of glory to come in. So who is this king of glory? And then it answers back. The Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. And so you can see that the suspense builds as the crowds inside wait for God's presence. Now, of course, we know that God is in all places. The Ark of the Covenant, though, symbolized God's, God's footstool of his throne. It was where God met with his people. And so they're eager for God's presence to bless, to, to, to return to the city. But the doors don't open quite yet. The victory chant continues in verse 9. And we do this again. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And again, those inside the city answer, 
Who is this king of glory? And again, the answer, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. The Lord of hosts, that phrase of hosts is the Lord of armies. The Lord of the earthly armies, the Lord of the heavenly armies. The Lord who is in command of all he chooses. And this is what we are waiting for, brothers and sisters. We are waiting for our king's arrival, amen? Yeah, we're waiting for King Jesus, for God's glory become man to arrive to this earth. And so now we imagine that same scene. And we imagine that we are inside the city and King Jesus is outside of the gates. And this is the greatest victory parade ever. And we want to know who is the King of glory? Jesus Christ, he is the King of glory. 1 Corinthians 2.8 calls him that, the Lord of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.6 talks about how God, who said light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is profound, profound and humbling. That God the Son would become man. Philippians 2 verse 6 says, Who though he was in the form of God, the very nature of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, to be held on and used for himself, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, that means the name belonging to Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Lord, that he is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. And that is, who is this King of glory? It is God the Son become man, taking on the form of a servant so that he could become obedient to the point of death so that he could take the punishment of our sins so that we can be reconciled to God, that we could become his worshipers longing for the king's return. This is what we are waiting for, right? We are not waiting for a president. We are not waiting for COVID end. We are waiting for the show to be over for us to be brought into eternal glory. The king of glory is returning in victory, saints. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead of Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That is what we are waiting for, the king of glory's return. Revelation 19, to 16 then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. This is Jesus Christ. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him in white horses. This is our King of glory. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of 
of God the, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is who we are waiting for. This is the King of Glory outside the gates. And so, saints, we are not waiting for COVID to pass or for a vaccine. We're not waiting for in-person classes to resume. We're not waiting for politicians to be elected. We are waiting expectantly for the one who we know will arrive, the King of glory. And that is what our hope is united around. That is, and why do we know that King of glory is coming? Because he's the creator. Because all of this belongs to him. Right? There's no chaos. He's in complete control. And so how do we wait? We wait optimistically, looking upward and humbly looking inward. We're concerned about pleasing him. We're not concerned about controlling everything out there. We're concerned about pleasing him, about having a pure heart and clean hands. Saints, it is certain our king is returning. So put your hope in it. Go all in. Our king is on his way. He's coming down the road. You can hear the footsteps of his white horse. You can see the dust of his, of his steed out there. You can hear the, 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 the thunder hoofs of the army coming. You can hear the ground shake under his war horse. Yet he's not against us because he died for us. He's coming with reward for all of those who have loved him and who have longed for his appearing. And so what do we do? When he comes back, there's not going to be any more time to repent. It's going to be too late. We've been longing for him. But those we love, those that we work with, and those in our neighborhoods, and those in our families are going to be judged by him. So bring them to worship your coming king. Make sure your friends know who you are for. 